hi everybody and welcome to the Cultural Studies Podcast. It's Toby Miller here. You can follow my adventures on tobymiller.org. And I'm in La Jolla, I guess, Nitin, is that right? That's right. I'm in La Jolla in a hotel called the Estancia with Nitin Goville. Nitin, how are you? Fine, Toby. How are you? I'm doing well. How is my pronunciation going on your first name? <laughs> it's not bad. You know, you have gotten very good over the years at the Hindi ta, and so I'm very impressed. I know you've been... (laughs) So I know that at one stage, word used to correct your name into nation. That's right, that's right. (laughs) And I I didn't change the autocorrect because I quite enjoyed being known as Nation Goble. My family would be very proud. (laughs) Yes, Nehruvian to the last. That's right. So tell me what you're up to right now. Tell me what you're doing. Well, I'm going to order breakfast with you. Yeah. I'm thinking the egg white frittata. Mm-hmm. And uh, we are here for the Cultural Studies Association conference. I just Cultural came back. Cultural Association brackets USA. Oh, USA. Oh, right. right. It's property our coffee has arrived. Uh, and I just came back from the Society for Cinema and Media Studies conference, which is the, uh, it's the national organization for, I guess, cinema studies. Mm-hmm. Bracket USA. <laughs> oh, except there is no bracket. <laughs> there is no bracket. Understood. <laughs> it's just understood. Thank you very much. Sir. And I think we're ready to order when you go a second. Thank oh, you. Just give me a second. Yeah, sure. Please take your time. We're not in any hurry. And this uh, this conference was in Boston, and so I was just there for that and in, enjoyed myself there presenting a paper with. Uh, a fantastic USC graduate student named Eric Hoyt, who's Ellen Sider's student, your friend. Yeah. Could I get the egg white frittata, please? Thank and I like the huevos rancheros, please. Of course you. And uh, Eric, who just defended, I think last week, and uh, is on to a job at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. He and I have been working on a project to look at uh, transnational film piracy in Bombay in the 20s. So we looked at, uh, we've done a lot of research based on... The city formerly known as Bombay. The city formerly known, which we refused to rename despite the government imperative. But uh, we looked at... uh, Douglas Fairbanks was very popular and probably the most popular Hollywood star in India in the 1920s and remained so, 30s and 40s. And uh, this was back when Hollywood was uh, 90% of the market in India. And uh, United United Artists got word from its so-called Far East office in Tokyo (laughs) about the Bombay piracies that were taking place, where unauthorized print dupes of the Thief of Baghdad and uh, uh, Son of the Sheik, etc., or not Son of the Sheik, but the Mark of Zorro, other other Fairbanks films were uh, being uh, um, exhibited without their permission. And so we've tracked this circuit based on United Artists Legal Council papers that are deposited at the University of Wisconsin. So presented a paper on that, and we hope to be writing that up. I'm finishing up, and we can, uh, if you want to know more about any of these things, I can, I can go into detail. I'm also finishing up something on a Indian film industry delegation to Hollywood in 1950s. Raj Kapoor uh, led a delegation of 14 notables to visit Hollywood in the early 50s, and uh, I'm looking at this in terms of the uh, the kind of burgeoning India-U.S. relationship in a key moment in the early Cold War. This is before non-alignment really takes hold. The U.S. thinks that Nehru may be, uh, you know, may be pliable. Uh, 
It's before um, they put their eggs in Pakistan's exactly, baskets. Exactly. Well, this is happening right in, in 52. So 53 is really when the door is closed. Um, so a, a paper on that, and I'm finishing two books. Uh, one is on uh, Hollywood in India. That should be coming out in Sarah Benet Weiser and Kent Ono's series at NYU Press. I've got a manuscript due here pretty soon. And then another book co-authored with Ranjini Mazumdar, who's a friend of yours as well, Toby, on the Indian film industries, which will be coming out next year, hopefully, in Michael Curtin's Screen Industries series at the BFI. Wow, wonderful. So, few well, things going on. Yeah, yeah, that's a lot. So tell us more, if you could, about this issue of piracy. What was the word used? Was there a common nomenclature in those days? The Bombay piracies. So it was actually the, the, the council, um, the, the solicitors in Hollywood, the solicitors in London, and United Artists representative in Bombay agreed on a sort of nomenclature for what was going on. And it was the, it, it, it was the Bombay piracies. Mm-hmm. Um, so did the term start with India and the US then? I don't know if that's the that's the uh, origin of the term, but I was surprised to see it that early because I actually thought it would have been later, but it was quite clearly, uh, you know, it used to be duping, uh, you know, in, in the teens and the early 20s, but piracy is pretty clearly named as the, the infraction, if you like. That's super interesting, isn't yeah. it? And this was... The the taking of reels of film that had been legally imported right. and then making extra copies. Right, right. So what happened was the circuit normally, even for so-called legal, and, you know, a lot of this is the way in which the legal and the non-legal bleeds into one another, but the, the, the legal circuit, if you like, would be, India would get these worn and leftover prints after the European... Uh, market, America dumped their prints onto the European market, then India would get them after that. So they were always uh, sort of degraded and, and in poor shape. So that was sort of the one circuit. The circuit that we tracked is a different circuit where a, a, a distributor in London named uh, M. Bear, we don't know uh, what M stood for, uh, would... Paddington. Uh, maybe Paddington, I'm not sure, but he would uh, procure uh, print positives either by buying them outright or sometimes by uh, telling uh, United Artists that he needed these prints for British garrison troops in Malta. And this is in, this is in the mid-1920s. And then what he would do is he would strike a negative from that positive print in order to create umpteen more positives. It would create a, a, a slightly more degraded print, um, but it did allow him to create, uh, you know, innumerable So it wasn't copies. done in India? It wasn't done in India, it was done. So part of what we're doing is we're trying to invert this sort of conventional spatial division of originality where the West is the creator and the East is the copier. The West was doing the copying well, and setting it on. not only that, but think about where some of the stories for Fairbanks... Oh, exactly. Exactly, exactly, the Arabian Nights, everybody, right? So that's true. So this is the circuit that we're, we're tracing. So, uh, you know, he would, these prints would, would, would pass from London to Paris to Portugal uh, to somewhere in Italy and then end up, uh, end up in Bombay. So it's really fun to trace this pirate circuit through the legal documents, um, letting, the, you know, uh, letting, the, letting the piracy speak, if you like. Um, and we've been doing that. It's, it's an enormous archive, and it hadn't really been looked at. Even when Tino Balio had done his extensive work on United Artists, he hadn't looked at 
uh, he hadn't looked at Asia in particular and not looked at these files. So sometimes you go looking for things and you find dust comes flying. Dust comes flying exactly. It's like the dust between. Barbara Stanwyck and Fred McMurray in Double Indemnity from the top of the stairs to the bottom. It's right, right, to right, the top. right. Less beautifully photographed in our place, but something like that. But we, so we're writing that up and seeing where that goes. Wonderful. Presented that at a panel with Ian Christie, uh, Jane Gaines, and Peter DeCherney, and I know you know all these folks. So I had a, had a, had a nice turnout and, and enjoyed it. There's a wonderful letter that we ended the presentation with, um, and this sort of tells the story in a nutshell where a pirate distributor in Bombay named Pickfair Pictures Corporation, and of course Pickfair was the name of Mary Pickford and Douglas Fairbanks' estate in Hollywood, and what they did is they, their letterhead, the Bombay letterhead, has images of Mary and Doug, and then the mansion, and it says Pickfair Pictures Bombay, and we have a letter from Pickfair Pictures Bombay to Douglas Fairbanks, care of Pickfair Hollywood. Uh, telling them how how big fa how big a fan they are and whether or not he has any pictures to send. Them. And of course, the other part of the story is that United Artists, the original artists, were those two exactly. plus Charlie Chaplin. That's right, right. And uh, D. W. Griffith, and that was sort of the, right. the the group. So it's a it's a it's a lovely story, and we feel like we're just uh, 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 sort of cracking the, the the top of it. The second part of the story is uh, has more to do with remakes because what happens after these these dupe piracies is that uh, there are remakes being made of uh, Fairbanks films, especially in the early 30s when sound uh, production comes into play. And uh, then the, the piracy litigation takes on a whole other uh, dimension. And this is where Hollywood's uh, piracy concerns with India really started around remake rights. They, there was these ridiculous articles coming out in the 80s and the 90s where Hollywood had said it had lost tens of billions of dollars of royalties to uh, Bombay filmmakers for their, you know, for not paying remake rights. So looking back at this uh, uh, early story, so I've become a bit of an archive nut in the last uh, in the last few months, thanks to Eric, who's the true film historian out of the two of us. And what about at the other end of things? What about in other countries where this was going on, particularly India, but I guess other parts of the global chain? that M. Bear was involved in, known as Paddington. To his no, known as Paddington. I don't know. M. was Mr. Mr. M, or we just call him M, was involved in a lot of things. We have the, <coughs> we have the invoices from Bear to Victory Film Company in Bombay, which was the pirate uh, distributor for various theaters in Bombay in the 20s. And uh, these things are uh, practiced scripts. It's quite clear. The, the prices are laid out. Uh, and uh, it, it's, it's clear that Bear would have been sending these things elsewhere. We haven't been able to find any mention of him or uh, these circuits elsewhere. But I would imagine Egypt probably was, uh, you know, uh, well, that the, area would have been there. itself, though? I don't know. Uh, where did they litigate? They, know. They, they attempted to litigate in Bombay. So one of the reasons that this was so difficult is uh, the Bombay judges, in their wisdom, uh, wanted the claimants to appear. And they all had to sign powers of attorney, and they wanted to know where copyright was located, the date of copyright. And these things are fantastically difficult to determine. And um, uh, the, the, the Indian courts were looking for real precision that you, you know, United Arts wasn't able to provide. Eventually, the the case was settled for legal costs, fifteen thousand rupees, which 
Victory Film Company never paid. So it's sort of this 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 uh, this uh, 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 this remarkable story, where at at a particular moment in Hollywood's history in India, where uh, they are really at their uh, their uh, highest degree of penetration from the country market share. The Indian production companies are really starting to gear up. Indian theaters are starting to show more and more Indian silent films. And of course, once sound film comes along, it's 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 curtains for Hollywood. Its market share would plummet in the 1930s. This is sort of a last gasp for Hollywood. Uh, and uh, it, uh, it it turns out that uh, it ended with a whimper, not a bang in the end for, yeah, for Hollywood sure in the late 20s. Stopped, yeah, stopped yeah. His own <laughs> That's right. Thank you very much. Where's yours? Oh, here it is. On the way. Thank you very much. Do you have some tapatio or something like that? Of course, that? Yes. That is really, really so that's the story, yeah. Trying to give some historical contour to these debates. Yeah. And the other thing is, I, tell me whether you've noticed in audience reactions any greater interest to these sorts of wonky issues than in the past. But my sense is that because this stuff is now in the media everywhere, yeah. there's a much greater level of public interest and a scholarly so. interest in these things. People who would have dismissed this as not part of what they need to know about yeah. now think it matters. Yeah, I think that's right. I think you know, piracy is, is, is part of everyday language, everyday parlance. We have, st we have stories in the news all the time. And um, you know the, the you know for example in the in the, the piracy work we did for Global Hollywood one and two I know that people were very interested and found that as a kind of way into thinking about Hollywood internationally and they may not have looked at that that much prior to that so it, you're absolutely right there is there is interest um, it has some pop as they say in the marketing business and uh, it's been. It's been fun to work on, and you know, lots of connections. And also, what we're trying, we're trying to say that the the, the dynamic that has been put into place by digital copyright issues doesn't necessarily map on in the same way to different kinds of media materialities. So, some of the some of the um, the assumptions that we have. Let's say materiality, immateriality, etc. If you look at the digital versus the analog, don't map onto these different uh, film circuits. So we're really enjoying. It's also, you know, uh, tells us a lot about how Hollywood traveled in the 20s. This is how people got to see these films, and uh, these are off the books. Uh, the, the distributors, there's no accounting of, of profits of. of those kinds of things, and it gives us a real glimpse, a, a very small part of the story. I hope that people are able to uncover more material uh, as goes on, but it, it, it gives us a little glimpse into how things work. Sure, sure. Were there particular parts of India where Hollywood was more popular than others at this time, before the decline with the expansion of the local industry and yeah. the transition to sound? Yeah. It was popular in, in all parts of the country. You know, uh, when, when sound uh, came in, Hollywood would become popular in the South again because of the, the greater penetration of English. Um, and, uh, uh, but at that time, uh, you know, the major centers, Bombay, Delhi, Calcutta, it was, it was extremely popular. We're talking 90%. I know the, the British yeah. colonizers, invaders, yeah. administrators, whatever we want to call them, imperialists, were very worried very at worried. different points about the impact of Hollywood. Yeah on 
the authority of whiteness, the authority of Britishness mm -hmm. in India, weren't they? They were. They were. They had a. There's numerous film conferences and, and uh, cinematographic committees that are put into place in the late 20s where the British colonial authorities are attempting to uh, gauge uh, just how much the native assessment of their white authority mm. is being compromised by Hollywood. And at the, you know, at the same time, Hollywood is very concerned about its British market and they don't really want to upset um, the, the, the British distributors. So there's a sort of negotiated compromise that takes place in the late 20s. And this is part of what Eric and I are thinking about as well. Um, that leads to the cycle of empire films that Hollywood makes, Lives of the Bengal Lancers, Ganga Din most famously, um, that sort of are about legitimating uh, uh, colonial enterprise just as the end of empire is yeah. inside. Heroizing. Britishness. That's right. That's right. So it's a nice story. Yeah, it is. It's quite a story. Epic, really. Yeah. What yeah. you have to say. Yeah. And when you look at the other materials that might be available, do you get a sense of what it was about Fairbanks that made him such a star and so popular? I mean, in general terms, we're always told in the United States it was his exuberant physicality, uh, his big smile and all these other factors. Yeah, yeah. I think that definitely had something to do with it. I mean, uh, he was in remarkable shape. Uh, I think contemporary moviegoers are always surprised that you know, out he comes, off his shirt comes, and it's, you know, Brad Pitt from Thelma and Louise. He's just in absolutely remarkable shape. I think it had something to do with his, uh, with his skin tone which, uh, which uh, even the Hollywood marketers referred to as sort of a swarthy kind of tone that, uh, that people connected to. I think it had to do with his irreverence. Um, uh, I think that it was, uh, you know, and, and it had a lot to do with his face and eyes. And, you know, if you sort of maybe looked at him through a badly degraded print, he might even look a little... South Asian, uh, you know, maybe with a uh, Pathan or Afghan kind of ancestry, you know. So I, I do know that that was part of uh, the attraction. And there were many uh, uh, Bombay actors. I know most about the the Bombay scene, but there are many Bombay actors who modeled themselves after yeah. Fairbanks. Yeah. Master Vital was known as the Indian Douglas Fairbanks, and Fearless Nadia donned Zorro costumes. And so the, he had a a, a, a massive, massive influence. Really, the star uh, for for Hollywood for decades and decades. And, and Thief of Baghdad gets remade over and over and over again, um, a couple of times a decade. Um, but uh, the, the film is really iconic in terms of Hollywood's history. And this is, you know, this is part of the larger material I've been looking at in terms of Hollywood in India. And so there are connections there as well. But yeah, huge star as he was elsewhere. Yeah. You know, his son was knighted. Was he? He was one of the few foreigners knighted by the British. It's one of those honorary knighthoods. When was this? Was this it in was the early for, 40s, maybe? It's or? for services to uh, struggle against fascism. Absolutely. I'm sure Junior did his bit. Junior did his bit. Absolutely. Right. Whatever it was. <laughs> I think maybe, I could be wrong about this, maybe he was living in London and he didn't leave. Maybe something like that. Right. 
Right. When, of right. course, so many did. Right, right, right. So then you had to give it to him. Yeah. Just for sticking around. That's right. Thank you. Do you have that papatiol? Yeah. Toby, what is that that you've asked for? It's a salsa. Oh, I see. A commercial okay. corporate salsa okay. that might is nice but a little lacking in flavor. Mm. So this will help. Rather like when I went to India 10 years ago, no matter where I went, because of my color, they found a way of giving me deracinated Indian food. See. Except when I went to Ira Baskin's house, right. where, of course, I was given the real deal. Oh, she, and she's a fantastic cook. You should have just pronounced your thas, and you would have, they would I, have, I have think, been coming through. I think it was you know, my color skin that saw me briefly discriminated <laughs> against for the umpteenth time. What can I say? <laughs> It's been a while since you were back. It is. Unfortunately, I was unable Why to go when I was oh. kindly invited um, a year or so back. That's right. But, uh, yeah, I, I, I want to go again. In any event, so that, that does sound like a wonderful and very stimulating piece of research that really could go in numerous other directions without too much trouble. Good. could. Yes. Um, yeah, sorry, go ahead. So, I don't want to keep you too much. Thank you very much. Mm, I'll try a little bit. What do you do? Just put it on the side? Yeah. But Lovely, I mean, thank you. Just see how you see how you go with it. No, it's nice. It's it's very nice, I think. I mean it's it's yeah, like Cholula, you know, it's not any big I mean it's very mm, conventional. It's got a little kick to it. But it has something nice. that you don't get with the, mm-hmm. the homemade is nice, but mm. it's pretty Friendly. My dad would have liked this. We were talking about my dad a little earlier in the car. Mm. This is something that he would have liked. Natin's father was a very inspirational... Is it fair to call him radio journalist? Is that the right word? It, 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 it is fair to call him that. You know, he uh, had a very long career in radio journalism, started out in All India Radio in the 1950s. And uh, his father, my grandfather, was actually one of Indira Gandhi's deputies at the Ministry of Information and Broadcasting. He... Um, uh, Indra had three deputies, and uh, my grandfather ran the bureaucracy of the ministry. And so when a post opened up for um, uh, All India Radio to send a representative to the new Hindi service at NHK in Tokyo in the mid-late 1960s, my father uh, wanted to apply for the job, and my grandfather was very worried that there would be charges of nepotism, given that uh, this was quite a a, uh, a uh, lucrative post at that time. So he suggested to my father that he get married. And I'm giving everyone the story of my birth, but uh, he suggested that uh, he get an married because... Primal it, scene. In an unusual primal scene. He suggested that he get married because it would look better on the application. And my father chose from a number of girlfriends at the time the only woman willing... Does. As one does. Toby, as, as, as Toby may. I've never had this experience, but... Uh, 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 chose amongst the, the number of his girlfriends at the time, the only woman willing to leave her family behind and head out to Tokyo in, uh, in, in the late 1960s. And so uh, that's, that's what my mother did. There were protests. There were, uh, there was, it sort of was hushed in the press, but there were charges of nepotism. Uh, but my uh, father ended up in uh, uh, Tokyo, and that's where I was made. Made in Japan, born in India, Tokyo. Made in Japan, born in India. Yeah, that's right. Now, 
why was there the all Hindi service or Hindi service in associated with NHK? You know, I don't know. I do know that at that period of time, NHK was sort of branching out in its language divisions. And um, uh, I, I think, you know, the BBC was sort of the model at that time. And NHK, uh, which is a great radio service, um, maybe was looking to sort of experiment and sort of looked at All India Radio and said, you know, who can you send us? And, uh, and so that's, uh, that's what they did. We, we, we spent a few years in Tokyo, and then my dad... Uh, worked at the BBC for many years in the, in the Hindi service before coming to the Voice of America, which he always thought was an absolute shit organization. I remember yeah, talking to him he, about it. Why did he come to the Great Satan? Well, I guess by the, in those days we didn't know it was the Great Satan. We, we, we didn't, didn't know. We didn't know. we didn't know. You know, it was it was a bit of a surprise to us uh, that uh, my sister and I, you know, growing up in in just outside London in the 70s and the 80s when I, was not easy for uh, brown folks. And, you know, the, there was sort of this story in the diaspora, this general sense that the kids all sort of suffered the, uh, uh, the humilities, the day-to-day -day humilities of living in Britain at that time. Where while their parents just sort of hung out with each other and had parties and enjoyed each other's company. And we really didn't think that, you know, we would mention it to our parents, but they didn't really understand because they never had to deal with anybody outside the South Asian diaspora, certainly for my father who worked uh, in the Hindi section at BBC, you know, he was, and which, was, which was staffed by a former All India Radio friends of his. So we were never not sure uh, about, you know, do, 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 do our parents really understand what our day-to-day -day lives are like? And I went to grammar school, and maybe your listeners who, who, who live in England or maybe grew up in England at that time would know what things were like in the, in the, in the, in the 80s. And then one day he, uh, he sort of talked to us and said, I've, I've received, a, received an offer for, for a temporary post at the VOA, and he had an old, old friend there, Umesh Agnihotri, uh, who was a friend of his back in All India Radio. He said, I, I think I might go. And he sort of realized that he had been paying some attention and sort of thought that, you know, I need to get my, I need to get my kids out of here. And so that's what we did in the, in, in the mid-'80s. He took that post. And he thought it was a real step down for him professionally, right. which it was, absolutely. Right. And for you guys, was the great Satan better in terms of the everyday racism of British schooling and education culture? I don't think so. I, I don't think so. It's quite remarkable because I think that when you are, you know, I was there sort of age 5 to 15, and uh, the body has a way of remembering and, uh, and, and uh, sort of uh, um, adjusting in, in ways. And, you know, one, one feels very powerfully connected to those experiences because your friends... Um, uh, suffered along with them, and also because so many of my uh, white friends grew up in, uh, in in households, in in National Front households, let's say, who they were trying to figure out, you know, what do I do with what do I do with my brown friend, and so you these very a bit like my beautiful laundress. a little bit, no, it's no, but, but I think uh, that I think that I think that Freer's, that I think Qureshi and and Freer's really picked up on that uh, that that. That confusion. Is a Facebook friend of mine. Oh wow! Wow! I don't know whether he knows. <laughs> he may not. He may not. Have known. 
He may have been in full recruiting mode. Yeah. 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 Yes. I remember they, seeing they the film. You absolutely, they absolutely they captured it perfectly. You know, and and uh, and and even even. Even young white British men who had come up in in households that were sort of structured around hating black and brown folks sort of confronted their own you know when confronted with their own friendship uh, really started to think through things as did I and uh, it was a, it was very intense. Uh, a period of, of of growing up, and and I and I still think of I still think of it as my home. When you've traveled, and Toby, I know you've done this as well. When you traveled so much, it's hard to pinpoint where's home. Right? And even though I've been in the U.S. for so long, I still think of still think of the U.K. often um, as home. And when I came to Northern Virginia, uh, it, it, it sort of right plopped in the middle of Reagan's political enterprise there in Northern Virginia. It was bizarre in its own ways and uh, really isolated and very disconnected. Uh, and it took me it took me many, many years, probably not until I came to New York about 10 years later to go to graduate school where I met you for the first time in the mid-90s for me to get over and sort of connect to the U.S. in a significant way. It's interesting, a profound strangeness, isn't it? It is. And VOA, have I ever told you my Voice of America Tell story? Tell me. It's actually a radio-free Europe story. Well, I know that you were brought in to evaluate their news division a few years later, so I don't know if this is the story. No, no, that isn't the story. That was thanks to you, and I did an unsatisfactory job, though. <laughs> I had to be reprimanded. I should just say, to, to interject, when, when uh, I, I was asked, uh, one of my father's friends, my father has passed away by then, Bhageshwar Verma, was uh, 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 one of the executives at the news division and asked me if I knew anybody uh, from media studies, he said, who, who, who might know something about radio uh, and who could evaluate the news division. And I don't know if I've ever told you this story, Toby, and I suggested a couple of names. One of names is Toby. And uh, obviously Toby not only knows media studies but had a background in radio <clears throat> and knows something about radio. The, the, the Voice of America executives who were gathered uh, at the table, uh, uh, Mr. Verma handed out your CV for the first time, which sort of landed with a heavy thud uh, uh, in front of them. And I think by, by, by sheer weight alone, Toby, it was yours. It, it was your gig. In any event, no, my story is a Radio Free Europe story. It is about Elia Kazan. Right. So, no, you haven't. Uh, you remember when he was awarded a Lifetime Achievement Oscar yeah. and there was great controversy. People sat on their hands. Some did. Mm. Warren Beatty, for example, didn't. Right. Uh, stood up and applauded. I think Scorsese stood up and applauded. I think too. he might have, yeah. And this controversy was because Kazan, who was a, a great director and had been a fellow traveller at least at the left, turned into a labour rat when it came to the investigations into the influence of communist ideas into Hollywood and named names of people who'd been in cells with him and so on. And so years later was regarded by many on the left as a, a traitor and not somebody who should be given this award, particularly since he'd won lots of other awards anyway. Lifetime achievement had, include destroy, had included destroying the careers of others and making right. sure that they didn't have any That's achievements. Right. Right. Anyway, the woman who rang me up and interviewed me live on Radio Free Europe, I once told Herb Schiller this story, by the way, and he looked at me stonily and said, I would never have appeared on Radio Free Europe. 
But in any event, my one and only appearance, <laughs> this woman rang me up and asked me about this and she said, isn't this ridiculous the way that these politically correct leftists are troubled about this? Shouldn't we just regard Kazan as a great artist and acknowledge him for that? And if there are other things to criticise him about, then do that separately. And I paused, which of course is committing a great crime on live radio. And I said, you're not by any chance an immigrant from the former Union of Soviet Socialist Republics, are you? And she said, yes, yes, I am. <laughs> so happy to be here in free America. <laughs> I said, oh, very good. Tell me, was one of the reasons why you left the Soviet Union the fact that your friends and work colleagues and family members and others potentially or actually would spy on you and release information about you to the authorities? Yes, 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 she said. <laughs> right. Well, have I got a story for you. <laughs> well, have I? No, and then I just left more dead air. And, of course, dead air of two or three seconds sounds like five minutes conversation. Absolutely does. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, anyway, that was the end of my Radio Free Europe career, almost <laughs> as undistinguished as... My little report that I wrote for Voice of America. Never to be invited back. Never to be invited back. <laughs> but as I say, having boldly told her this story, he was less than impressed that I'd even consented to make an appearance. Fantastic. And good on her, I should say. Of course, a great man. Mm -hmm. But in any event, so that gets very, very... That's very, very interesting, the, the shift between the absolutely overt anti-South Asian racism yeah. in Britain, but it's being very transitional because of a particular period in history. I mean, I remember... Uh, I think it was a British magazine come journal about the history of the news media, reporting on, having a little section on the history of South Asians in Leicester, yeah. which is a very boring place in the East Midlands of Britain. Um, that Toby knows well. Where I, where I was born, and which is now the most multicultural city in Europe, so and has had a South Asian mayor for some time. Yeah. But he's regularly voted most boring city in Europe as well, <laughs> being most multicultural. And did have some of the so-called riots or rebellion in August in, in 2012, uh, 11, in, in Britain. There was a bit there as there was a bit in Liverpool and so on. In any event, uh, this was Index on Censorship, this magazine, come journal. And they had a whole series of photos and reminiscences of South Asians in Leicester who first got there. I mean, no doubt they were there in the 18th and 19th centuries, but moved there in the contemporary era during the first world... Uh, during the Second World War, in a sort of noticeable way. And there, are, there were photographs in this of newspaper advertisements from when I was a child in the early 60s saying, uh, rental advertisements for property, saying only whites welcome. Right, right. And the jump from that in really not even a generation was absolutely extraordinary. Uh, absolutely extraordinary. Mm, unbelievable. That's uh, true. So I think there, there has been a real transformation there. Yeah, the other thing that's interesting right. when it comes to South Asians, as opposed to people of, of African descent who are living in Britain, is there was, I wonder about both cricket and also food right. as core components right. in this because even the most racist of people want to have a curry exactly. after getting drunk. Yeah. I mean, that's an extraordinary, right. and, extraordinary and part of everyday life it's in It's true, culture, it's true, it? it's true. And, of course, uh, during this moment in the 1970s, in the 1970s, 1980s, when I was a child, uh, the best uh, the, the, the best fast bowler is going to be the Pakistani kid you just beat up, and the best spin bowler is going to be the Indian guy right. you just you know yes. that you just kicked yeah. around. So right. you're absolutely right. And there was a you know because uh, because the brown kids wanted to play too, there was a sort of a, a negotiated compromise at that moment. But I remember a, a friend in school, and I'll. I'll never, 
I'll never forget this. Mohammed Hatimi, who had a very, very quiet boy, his family had just moved from Pakistan. I was just a kid, and, and, and he was very, very slight, um, very, very slight build. And I uh, used to get picked on relentlessly, and he was in my class. And I was sort of glad when he showed up because he took away some of the attention from me for a little while, and so I didn't get to know him all that well either. Um, uh, but then we got to be friends, and I remember, absolutely remember clearly the first day we were out uh, uh, for our, our, uh, our cricket session in grammar school, and uh, 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 Muhammad ran up, and the, 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 look, the look of absolute shock and awe amongst the large uh, uh, British bloke uh, on the other end was really stunning. So and this is, this is, it was really, it, 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 I mean, it, it, it shattered, it shattered his world. Uh, you know, because, you know, you saw, you saw Imran Khan on television actually think that, you know, people might be able to bowl like that. And, and sure, I'll never forget, I'll never forget his look um, and Muhammad's look when he turned back around and walked back to take the next one up. Uh, it was, it, it's those types of things you remember, absolutely, yeah, For inspirational. For those uh, US listeners, Imran Khan is possibly going to be the next... You're going to hear a lot more about Prime him. Minister of Pakistan, it's entirely possible. He was a very famous cricketer and uh, became a great benefactor of medical charities in Pakistan. Uh, having been a playboy, completely kind of westernized figure, marrying a, a nice Jewish girl, <laughs> uh, he's become, in some ways, a, he's a very interesting kind of conflicted character. I don't think he's all that clever, right. for one thing. Right. But he's got these fascinating contradictions, doesn't he? He does. Where, on the one hand, it's all about modernized Pakistan, yeah. And, yeah. Yeah. you know, end social inequality and injustice, and so on. On the other hand, he's got this bizarre hardline resentment. It's true. Uh, and uh, sexism. It's true. Homophobia. It's true. He tries to negotiate and deny, but it's clearly there. It's absolutely part of his formation. He's a a wonderfully contradictory character. There was a long profile of him, like about 2,000 words that I read a couple of weeks ago in, I think, The Observer, where a lot of this comes out. He's just massively contradictory. He is, he is. But remains now, as he was then, the most beautiful man on the planet. Yeah, totally. a very good-looking guy, and he was called the Lion of Lahore. He was indeed. And he was my, my, where my mother was born. My favorite cricketer Absolutely. Uh, of his day. I mean, he, between him and Viv Richards, I guess, but in terms yeah. of, uh, you know, any time Imran was playing, I wanted him... When he was bowling to Viv, it was difficult. Oh, yeah, well, I'm sure. That, we were I always wanted... I didn't necessarily want Pakistan to beat other teams, but I wanted him to destroy the other team. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Because he was so extraordinary. It's true. And those tight pants and the red streak from the ball. It was the red streak from the, the ball, long hair. He would, he would mark out his terrain, just <laughs> like the lion of the He would ball. indeed. He would indeed. Google Imran Khan cricket ball immediately, those of you listening, <laughs> and you'll see this, his stre- the red streak on his pants. They're always just a size or two too small. Marvelous. Giving a new meaning to the term the male gaze and female <laughs> Absolutely. gaze. Absolutely. In any event, so these are interesting parts of your formation. And getting back to your professional work, we've got about 20 minutes okay. left. Uh, to what extent did these elements of your formation, your experience in moving from Japan um, and India to Britain and from Britain to the US, come to adopt a political and cultural form for you? At what age did you start to think there's something wrong with this picture and it's related to colonialism uh, or whatever you, know, you may have thought? It's a good question. 
I don't know if I've really thought about it in depth. Maybe not. I was hoping that you know, with with the with the with the dessert course, um, I think you know. I mentioned a little bit earlier moving to the to U.S. Uh, living in Northern Virginia from about 15 to 25 before moving to New York was a sort of uh, um, uh, a blank time for me. I, I, I didn't do very well in school. Uh, I, I wasn't uh, integrated into the South Asian community in, uh, in, in Northern Virginia as well. I mean, obviously my parents were and family, friends, etc., but I really felt I had I had very little to very little uh, uh, to connect with with my um, Indian friends at school in in, in Virginia and Washington D.C. where there's a quite a large South Asian community. So uh, I, you know I probably didn't think about it a whole lot. I, I sort of uh, um, it it was a period of intense isolation. So this is contradictory thing. You think you're leaving this terrible place. Coming to you know the shining city on the hill, if you like, and everything will be better. And certainly, there wasn't that day to day. Yeah, the, 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 yeah, the, 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 it, it was present, but not in the, not obviously with the same intensity that we that had in London. Person, yeah. yeah. So, but but uh, um, uh, when that was gone, it was sort of a boring life for about ten years. So I didn't. I don't think I thought about it too much. And I think I. Uh, uh, I, I think I. Uh, I, I, I sort of. Uh, didn't uh, deliberately uh, didn't you know date Indians? I didn't have many Indian friends. I uh, I sort of kept to my uh, kept to myself and got to know um, white American folks. Uh, well, and those are sort of my friends. So I I think there was I think it wasn't until. Uh, late in my undergraduate, it took me a long time to graduate my undergraduate. I worked in uh, a lot of jobs. I paid my own way, and uh, I had some really, really remarkable teachers at George Mason University, where I went for my undergrad. This is before uh, Paul Smith was there, before cultural studies was founded. There, obviously, it's become well known since then. This was when uh, Cindy Fuchs, Denise Albanese, Tom Moylan. Anya O'Brien, people like that were there, and sort of, uh, uh, you know, and 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 thank you very much. Robert Carr, I remember. Thank you, Robert Carr. I would like more coffee. Thank you. Uh, Robert Carr is a remarkable uh, uh, postcolonial literary theorist. Um, brought in subaltern studies into the classroom, and I sort of reconnected in a way. So I think that it was that moment, and really through school, uh, that I, I reconnected. So I, it wasn't until I moved to New York that I uh, started to have very, very close um, um, South, A South Asian friends again. And it was really kind of, I haven't really thought about it much, Toby, until you asked the question, but... Uh, New York was very important, and that movement from you know, you know, Washington D.C. and New York are only four hours apart on the on 95, but they really are worlds. Some of us take Amtrak. Some, some of yes, indeed, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the Metro Liner, um, I think it's called. Wear <laughs> fantastic clothes and hug leather attaché cases. Right, and still won't talk to us. Not to me. Anyway. <laughs> yes, it's yeah, not so moving, very far away. It's not very far away, but but they're they're worlds apart. But moving to New York really is 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 where uh, you know uh, these things sort of reconnected for me. I reconnected to school. I was a very good student in Britain and became a very poor student here. I reconnected to school. I I, I was reinvigorated uh, and uh, uh, sort of got over some of these things that had preoccupied my life for the first you know 25 years.
Wow, and all downhill from there. Too. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, um, in terms of making India one of your objects yeah, of yeah, study, yeah. is that part of this? I think it is. I think it is. And uh, I think there, there was something about um, being really a part of British diasporic in, uh, experience, rejecting, in some ways rejecting uh, the South Asian American diasporic experience for quite a number of years and uh, coming back to India in a sort of uh, a circuitous route back through Hollywood. I think that is exactly the story of my interest over the last 15 years or so. It's absolutely true. But when young, yeah, yeah. watching Hindi movies probably yeah. with the family. Mm -hmm. So it's there. Oh, it's absolutely there. I mean, these are, you know, uh, uh, you grow up in a, in, a, uh, in a South Asian household. We spoke only Hindi at home. And uh, 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 we ate um, we ate uh, um, North Indian food every day. I remember it would be a treat for my sister and I when we would have what we called English food, which would be fish fingers once in a while, maybe a beef burger once in a while. My father was a strict vegetarian. My mother uh, uh, was loved meat, but we would have English food once in a while. But yeah, yeah, and uh, you know, uh, all of our family, friends, and we have a very big family. In, in, in the U.S. and in the U.K. as well, but yeah, it was really—it's—it's it's, it's really a story of, 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 of coming back, and you don't—you don't think about these things when you're uh, working on them. But now that I'm sort of uh, putting, you know, crossing the T's and dotting the I's on my book project, I, I think that that is definitely part of the story. And <coughs> excuse me, thinking of film in all of this, how? Significant. This is a terribly broad and imprecise question. Is film today in the Indian diaspora and in the nation itself, when it is claimed to be an art form that is, as a theatrical experience, essentially dying mm, yeah. in so many places? Yeah, it 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 drives it drives popular culture uh, throughout South Asia, throughout the diaspora. Uh, it is. It is as big as it has ever been. Uh, there are different uh, entry points into uh, film culture through music, through cricket. We were talking about cricket, and you think about the the uh, Bollywood stars who uh, own various IPL. Here we are on the eve of the IPL. Indian uh, Premier League. Indian Premier League. Um, uh, so there, there are all these uh, entry points uh, but it, it's all around film as sort of this gravitational center, absolutely. And and you know now uh, uh, Indian film stars uh, appearing in in Hollywood films and uh, you know terrible ones mainly, but nevertheless. One of the things I notice is that in Los Angeles. If you go to a multiplex yeah. at 11 in the morning, yeah. you'll find South Asians leaving from a 9.30 right. the early show. exhibition that's right. the early show. of that's right. a film that's not been advertised that's really right. to the wider that's public. Right. That's yeah. right, that's right. And there's the uh, formation of the Indo-American uh, Arts Council in Los Angeles that's going to be uh, uh, looking at opportunities for alignments between Hollywood and, and Bollywood moving forward. So it's and uh, hockey dilemma. <laughs> that's right. That's, that's right. That's right. That's right. So it's uh, it, it should be interesting I'm moving up there and moving up there in the, at the end of the summer. So uh, just uh, as Nitin Toby is leaving. He lives in San Diego yeah. and is 
moving from San Diego to Los Angeles to work at the University of Southern California. And uh, is that one of the things you want to look at when these book projects are done? Yeah, I think so. You know, these books are going to be done in 2013, which is the mythic centenary for both American cinema and uh, the Indian film industry. Oh, coffees for this gentleman. And uh, so it should be it should be an interesting time. Uh, and there's 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 wonderful uh, people working on thank you on uh, Indian cinema in and around uh, Los Angeles that I'm looking forward to uh, connecting with. And there's just a lot of. Uh, there's a lot of interest uh, at the school. The, the dean of the film school there is very, very connected uh, in, well, everything, but especially connected to these uh, Bombay, Los Angeles circuits. And so uh, we've got some things planned for 2013. There's a number of uh, centenary and dual centenary events planned for next year. So people hopefully will read about them. And it's not far from that time that the Sikhs came to Southern California, isn't it? They've been in the so-called Inland Empire for about a century. Yeah, yeah, a long time. Yeah. Uh, so it'd be yeah. interesting to, to track yeah. the centenary, as it were, of Hollywood uh, and the yeah. emergence of a South, a South Asian yeah. immigrant the, community. There were some, there were some uh, very prominent um, uh, uh, Sikhs working in Hollywood in the 1920s and the 1930s. A man named Bhagwan Singh was uh, Hollywood's designated turban rapper, as they called him, and he wrapped the turbans for their various uh, uh, empire productions. Now it's in the an 19- animatronic. <laughs> no, it's... <laughs> the turban is an animatronic. That's right. That's right. It's like the, the, the chimp you know, hotels that they used to have. That's the right. The last one of which closed oh. a couple of years ago in LA, very sad. Now it's yeah, really yeah. So he yeah. was the designated turbanist. Yeah, <laughs> The Turbinator. He was the Turbinator. Yeah. He was the Monty Panasar. He was the Monty Panasar. Your cricket listeners are, are know yeah. what we're talking. Everyone else is like, what the fuck? WTF Monty Panasar. <laughs> Monty is currently in bad odor because he dropped two catchable balls in a space of five minutes that the English think allowed them to lose a major cricket match just ended at about five o'clock this morning. Yeah. Uh, California time in Sri Lanka yeah. in Gaul. Is, it, is, is Gaul the right pronunciation? It's, it, it, the BBC it, says Gaul, it, but I've it, never it, 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 It's Gaul, and it was a wonderful. If it was, it was a wonderful chase. Well, this is going to turn into a cricketing podcast. Yes, so if we keep if we keep going, but I will say that uh, I, I will just put it out there for the fans out there that uh, Sri Lankan cricket has not found. Uh, Despite uh, Herath taking 12 wickets, found the their replacement for Murli. Murli. It, it's not happened. I, Jack Boycott said yesterday, if Murli were playing, this would have been over a day and a half. <laughs> it would have been, absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> it we're been. talking about uh, Murali Muralitharan. Is that correct? Roughly correct pronunciation. Okay. Who was a quite remarkable cricketer, who's taken the most wickets of any bowler in international. 800 play. wickets in Test history. Yeah, exactly 800. 800. Got an average of about five a game, which is quite remarkable for that long a period. And uh, he's in a long tradition of South Asian players who have a so-called withered arm <laughs> or withered wrist. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm thinking of Chandrasekhar. Who, Absolutely. Who, uh, was whenever bowling was referred to by by white commentators as he has a withered arm. <laughs> that's that's why we're losing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, and interestingly enough, this play with disability becomes both a way of patronizing yeah. the South Asian success story, but also explaining and legitimizing various kinks in the delivery that would 
might be considered illegal that's in right. terms of straightening an arm. That's right, that's right. Shane Warne and others just you know, vilified Murley. It took a long yeah. time for him to get respect on the international days yeah. because they all thought he was chucking and yeah, he was just beating them. You know? Yeah, so I think that was his real crime. <laughs> that was his real crime. Uh, in any event, so uh, just getting back to... to this you. has been Bull with Boyks yeah. on uh, Crick Info. <laughs> Absolutely. Crick Info, now owned by ESPN, and therefore a Disney property, is one of Disney's surveillance devices for finding out about people's interests and practices. They own, they have rugby.com, mm. they have a couple of these somewhat obscure sports in terms of Disney US interests, but nevertheless are very valuable, not so much I think for selling advertising, but for finding stuff out Fantastic. about audiences wow. around the globe. I'm still so going to listen. They buy up these <laughs> sites. Yeah. Yeah. No. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, you've got these books coming out, yeah. and that's going to be a big thing. It's going to be a busy year for you, having just moved north a few hours and then these books coming out but uh, a, a special time too to have all of that going on what do you think might be the next big project because you've got these two large projects coming to conclusion what do you see i mean this is a job interview where do you see yourself in five years and to which i always want to say more dead than alive or yeah. with my head down yeah. a toilet bowl or or or, 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 where I, I, or as we junior faculty say where would you like to see me dean miller uh, <laughs> You know, I'm. Uh, I, I guess the, the the thing I have to decide is whether or not I want to do more work between India and the U.S., particularly around film culture. Uh, I've been working on it for a long time, and I, I think there are still more stories. Uh, and just because there's this, there, I, I just sense that there's going to be ongoing interest in these. Uh, uh, these increasingly close alignments between the industries. I've thought a little bit about a. Uh, I was inspired by Julia Roberts, as uh, who was uh, a neighbor of yours, Toby, uh, a Indeed. few years ago. Uh, you're still in touch with Julia? It's one of those things that I don't like to talk about all that much. It goes beyond words, which is one of the reasons. <laughs> she knows a lot more about me than I know about her. Fair it. enough. Of that we can be certain. Julia, if you're listening, you're, you're missed, clearly. Uh, Julia Roberts inspired me uh, with her recent conversion to Hinduism, announced in the pages of Elle magazine, no less, a couple of years ago. And uh, I thought I would, I thought, uh, I've written some, a, a short piece on, uh, on Julia's conversion and looked at that in terms of the number of Hollywood stars that have... Uh, uh, found new life in uh, in various South Asian religions, uh, Goldie Hawn, uh, Richard Gere, amongst others, um, and uh, thought I might do something on religion and stardom. I'm not quite sure. I don't know if you live in Los Angeles and work at the film school at USC, whether you're allowed to write about Tom Cruise and Scientology, but I would love to. Uh, it may get me booted out of there before I even start up. So maybe something on on, on, on stardom and religion. You know, uh, another permanent or something like that. Tom is known, of course, for a number of interesting practices. One of which He's is indeed. setting up of a Scientology stall on set. So people can attend. Oh, is that true? Is that true? Another is requiring receive auditing services on site. Requiring people who would come and work as publicists on his films 
to answer the question, would you undertake a personality test? <laughs> and would like you to. And they're allowed to say no unless you'll get the job. They must be honest. And thirdly, and I think his greatest contribution ever, was his remark, I think, to the BBC when asked about his view of H.G. Wells, lifelong socialist, of course, and applicant for the first ever chair in sociology in Britain, unsuccessfully. His great remark when asked about H.G. Wells' novel during the shooting of The War of the Worlds, it's a real page turn. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. I'll, I'll never forget, I grew up uh, reading and loving science fiction and even crap science fiction like uh, uh, LRH, uh, uh, L. Ron Hubbard. I remember uh, being so surprised at a young age to discover that he had this whole other life until I realized that it was the same life. And his, his books were all part of this larger uh, sort of uh, uh, thing you learn about at uh, uh, Operating Fate in Level 3, I think is where the science fiction universe really comes into play. It's marvelous. You could be the first Dianetic dialectician. Wow. Wow. Just think of that. Yeah. The possibilities of yeah. Yeah. The Hubbard chair. The L. Ron Hubbard Chair of Dialectic and Materialism at the University of Southern California, Department of Critical Studies. Yeah. Have money, will travel. Sounds good, doesn't it? Well, Nitin Govil, thank you very much. I think that with luck, tomorrow night you're going to be in another podcast with John McMurray, so we'll hear more from you then. But it's been wonderful chatting, and I hope that when those books come out, whether they come out together or with a little bit of distance between them, you'll come back to the pod and tell us more about them. It's been a pleasure, Toby. Thank you.